Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you. The time in the life of our church when a lot of ministries are getting started. I know it can seem a little maybe kind of overwhelming as you're trying to uh, choose what to do, but having said that, let me add one more possibility to your list, which is Christianity Explored class um, that we're going to be starting uh, pretty soon. So um, uh, this is going to start on September 16th, Thursday nights. It'll be from 6.30 to 8 p.m. It'll be held at... uh, Uh, the home of my wife and me, and um, this is just a good opportunity to get to know a little more about what Christianity is about. So if you are not a Christian, or maybe you don't know if you're a Christian, or maybe you want to become a Christian and don't know how to do that, or maybe you are a brand new Christian, uh, that's who this class is designed for. And we do promise that we won't make you sing, and we won't make you pray, and uh, we're not intending to do anything that might make you feel uncomfortable. We really want to open it up for your questions and to walk with you as you consider the claims of Jesus. So we'd love to have you come. Uh, If uh, you know people in your life, by the way, who fit this category and you want to invite them, they don't go to the church, that's fine. Uh, Please extend that invitation. And if you'd be willing to come with them to the class, I think that would really help. Um, But again, start September 16th, uh, Thursday nights, sign-up sheet uh, at the Welcome Center. Uh, This is now the time to dismiss children for children's church as well so children if you would move to the uh, center door of the sanctuary thank you children's church leaders and please open your bibles to the book of genesis and if you don't have a bible that's okay Uh, i would encourage you to pick up one of the bibles underneath one of the chairs in front of you one of the paperback bibles Uh, It will really help you if you have a Bible in your lap so that you can follow along because we are deeply convicted here that messages to be rooted in Scripture. What you want to hear is not my ideas. I want you to hear God's ideas, and God's ideas are in the Bible. And so we want to follow the Scriptures as carefully as we can. So uh, if you have a paperback paperback Bible, the passage is on page 6, Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Um, There's a guy named uh, Dr. Steve Foster um, who uh, left his home in 1978 to move to the nation of Angola, which is on the southwestern coast of Africa. And um, uh, this country at the time happened to be a place that was plagued by a lot of famine and disease, was considered a very dangerous part of the world. It also happened to be the place that had the highest death rate for children in all the world. And this guy, Dr. Stephen Foster, decided to move there so that he could start a hospital and spend his life caring for sick children. And one of the things that motivated him to do this is the fact that he is a believer in Jesus. He is an evangelical Christian. And this Um, was such a significant event that even the New York Times took note of it, and a guy named Nicholas Kristof wrote an article called A Little Respect for Dr. Foster. And in that article, Kristof wrote this. He said, I must say that a disproportionate share of the aid workers I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible had evacuated, have been evangelicals, nuns, and priests. 
In other words, what he's saying is when I'm out in the world and I see people who are doing acts of mercy and sacrifice for the poor and needy, in most cases, they are Christians. And if you know anything about history, you might be aware that um, very often throughout history it's been Christians who have started hospitals, who have started orphanages, who have started universities to benefit people in various communities throughout the world. And so as Christians, we love these kinds of stories, and we like to point to these kinds of stories. The Christians do good things in the world. But that's not the whole story, is it? That's not the whole story, because Christians sometimes can be very disappointing. Christians fall in to self-righteousness, judgmentalism, hypocrisy, various kinds of moral scandals, and sometimes this is precisely what keeps people from wanting to become a Christian, as they look at other Christians and they become disillusioned. It's like Gandhi who once said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Now, I think that critique is a little unfair uh, because of what I've just shared with you and because of the many examples that we can point to to show how Christians do make a difference in the world, but we should freely admit that there are black marks in the history of the church and that Christians have not always behaved as we should, that God's people are inconsistent at best, and exhibit A for that statement is Abraham. <laughs> and that's who we're looking at here in the book of Genesis. We just started this new sermon series last week called The Life of Abraham. This is really just a continuation of our series on Genesis that we started many months ago. But last week we're picking up in chapter 12, calling this now The Life of Abraham. And you might remember from last week's sermon that Abraham knocked it out of the park in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. He believed what God said, he obeyed God's command, he witnessed in the world uh, he was a little bit like Dr. Stephen Foster. You know, he was this person that we can lift up as a very godly and hopeful example. But this week, you're going to say, is this the same guy? How could Abraham have acted one way in verses 1 through 9 and act an entirely different way in verses 10 through 20? Well, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it gives us such a realistic portrayal of the Christian life. The Bible's not sugarcoating things for us. The Bible is not seeking to make all the characters in the Bible perfect individuals. The Bible shows us the truth, and that is that we're all inconsistent. We're up one day, we're down the next. Sometimes we're on top of the world, sometimes we wonder how God could ever love us. Sometimes we're excelling, sometimes we're going backwards. Sometimes it's two steps forward, three steps back. And that's the life of the Christian. And that was the life of Abraham too, and it testifies to the fact that we are all in need of the triumph of grace, all of us deeply in need of a God who would relate to us in grace. So that's what we're going to learn in this passage today. So let's stand out of respect for God's Word, if you are able. Let me read Genesis 12, 10 through 20. <clears throat> now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. <clears throat> and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Lord God, please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so the sermon series is called Life of Abraham. You'll notice that this is Abram. Abram gets his name changed later. So just to be clear, Abram, Abraham, same guy. Sarai, Sarah, same girl. Uh, I might kind of get those mixed up in my mind, but just so you know, these are uh, the same people. So the first thing we want to consider, um, sadly, is the failure of Abraham, or of Abram, the failure of Abram. And there are many examples of how <clears throat> Abram has really disappointed us here in this passage. I want to point out three things. Poor Abraham. I know he's going to get kind of beaten up here a little bit this morning, but uh, the first thing we want to look at is Abram's fear. So here's something to, to notice. You might remember that God told Abram to go into the promised land, and so he traveled, and he went to the promised land, and when he got to the promised land, God said, this is the promised land. This is the land that I'm going to give you, and one of the very first things that Abram then does is leave the promised land. So if you look at verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. Now, God didn't call Abram to go to Egypt, did he? He called Abram to go to the promised land, but nonetheless, Abram leaves the land right away. Now, I think we do want to be careful about being too hard on Abram here in this case. After all, there is a famine, verse 10 tells us. In fact, it says that the famine was even quite severe. And Abram is in the Negev, as it says at the end of verse 9. That's the southern part of the promised land, very close to Egypt, would have been very convenient to leave the promised land, to go to Egypt where the Nile River existed, well-watered place, certainly a place that would be a logical place to go in the famine. But one of the things we notice in this text is that what is driving this decision seems to be Abram's fear. And so you see that in verses 11 and 12. He says, when he was about to enter Egypt... He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So Abram begins to think ahead, okay, what's this going to be like when we get to Egypt? And he begins to imagine what's going to happen, and he acknowledges that he's got this very beautiful wife. I mean, Sarai apparently is a knockout, I mean, she is a ten, and um, Abram is aware of this. And by the way, Sarai is about 65 years old at this time. Uh, so, uh, ladies, be encouraged. You can be beautiful as you grow older. 
Uh, I think that's a, a biblical thing to consider. So Sarai, 65 years old, she is beautiful. And Abram looks ahead and he says, well, here's what's going to happen is that they're going to notice how beautiful she is and they're going to take her and they're going to kill me. So he's afraid, right? He, he's imagining what's going to happen. He becomes afraid, and then his fears start driving his decisions. But here's something that's uh, very interesting. When we look to see what actually happens, let's go down to verse 16 for a moment. This is after Pharaoh's princes have taken Sarai. It says, for her sake, for Sarai's sake, he, that's a Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, servants, female donkeys, camels even. Camels were very rare at this time. Camels would have been a, a symbol of prosperity and luxury and riches. So here's Abram looking ahead, scared to death of what's going to happen when he goes to Egypt, and we find that his worst fears actually never materialize. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Pharaoh doesn't kill him. Pharaoh blesses him, gives him riches, takes care of him. I think there's a lesson there for those of us who tend to be driven by fear. Isn't that the way it very often is, that your worst fears don't materialize? That things don't actually turn out to be quite as bad as you thought they would? <laughs> Scriptures are pretty clear. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear is natural. We're weak it's easy to fall into fear, but bad decisions can be <clears throat> made when we're driven by fear. And so this is what happens next. We see Abram making a bad decision. That is a decision to be deceitful. So this is the second failure, Abram's deceit. So in his fear, he kind of devises a plan. So in verse 13, he tells Sarai, here's what we're going to do. I got a plan. Sarai, say you are my sister. So the idea in Abram's mind here apparently is that if the Egyptians know that Abram is Sarai's husband, they'll kill him, but if they think that Abram is her brother, then they will leave him alone and Abram will be safe. Now we'll find out later that this is kind of a half-truth because we'll learn that Sarai is Abram's half-sister. Um, so we'll talk about that later when we get there, but this is a kind of a half-truth here. It's not a full lie. Very often our deceit is that way, right? It's not a bold-faced lie. It's kind of a half-lie. And that's what um, Abram is resorting to here. But I think what makes this decision on Abram's part so serious is that he's bringing Sarai into the sin. Notice what he's saying in verse 13. He's saying, say you are my sister. In other words, Sarai, I want you to lie. I mean, this is my idea, but you're the one that's going to carry it out. Here's my plan, Sarai. So you say that you are my sister. Say it like this. And so here we have Abram leading his wife into sin. Not exactly loving his wife as Christ left the church. Not exactly setting himself up as a godly leader for his wife. And then we see, uh, thirdly, Abram's selfishness. If you look at verse 13 again, it's his fear that's driving him, but we also see, he says, say you are my sister. Why? That it may go well with me, he says. I'm concerned about me here. 
I want things to go well with me because of you and that my life might be spared for your sake. Never mind the fact that your life might be lost as Pharaoh takes you into his harem and who knows what's going to happen to you in that strange place. But Abram's saying, my main concern is me. I want things to go well with me and I want my life spared. After all, who knows, maybe Abram was thinking, God gave me the promise. I'm the man here. I'm the one who's really important. I'm the one who's going to make this work. Besides, Sarah, you're barren. Maybe the Lord will give me a fruitful wife later. I mean, that's speculation, but it sure seems like Abram is fixed on himself at the expense of his wife, as verse 13 tells us. So, what happens? Well, we see in verse 14, Abram entered Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful. Yeah, like Abram expected. And they um, took her into Pharaoh's house at the end of verse 15. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, what happened when Sarai got to Pharaoh's house? Well, we're not told these details. We don't know. And so there's a lot of question about whether Sarai was defiled at this time. And I'm going to say, no, she wasn't. And the reason why is because of that word taken there in verse 15, at the end of verse 15, taken into Pharaoh's house. There are many other places in the book of Genesis where it's pretty clear uh, when some kind of sexual relationship has taken place. I mean, I mean Genesis is a, a pretty blunt book, okay? I mean, there are some R-rated portions of Genesis. Genesis is not shy about sharing the sordid details, and so sometimes the Bible will say things like, um, he knew her, or uh, he lay with her, or he violated her. Those are terms that are sometimes used for a sexual relationship. What we see here is they, they took her. So that seems to fall a little bit short of saying that Sarai was, was violated or defiled in any way. Um, but nonetheless, that doesn't really get Abram off the hook. Uh, because of Abram's selfishness, Sarai is put in a very bad place. So, two things I want to suggest that we can take from this. And the first thing is this. Faithfulness to God does not guarantee an easy life. So, through verses 1 through 9, like we saw last week, Abram hit it out of the park, right? Home run. He believed. He obeyed. He witnessed. He did everything the way he was supposed to do. And then you get to verse 10, and the first thing we read is, now there was a famine. That's not generally what we expect, right? Abram did it right. He obeyed. He was a good Christian. So, why did God send a famine to him? Now, very often, the way we think is, okay, I'll do this for you, God, now you do this for me. I'll bless you, you bless me. And that's not the way it always works, is it? Abram's faith is immediately tested. Even though his faithfulness was impressive, God met his faithfulness with a trial, with a crisis, with a difficulty. And that's what we should expect as Christians. Faithfulness to God does not guarantee an easy life. It doesn't guarantee smooth sailing. And very often for his children, he sends trials. This is what 1 Peter tells us. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. I mean, I know in my own personal life, when a trial or crisis comes, I just seem to always be surprised. I can't believe this is happening to me. 
Scripture says, don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. This is the way God shapes us. This is the way God molds us. God is interested in Abram's holiness and growth and righteousness. So he sent a famine. J.C. Ryle says this, Trouble is the pruning knife which God employs in order to make us fruitful in good works. The harvest of the Lord's field is seldom ripened by sunshine only. It must go through its days of wind and rain and storm. Now, there are days of sunshine, (laughs) and maybe you're in a day of sunshine right now. We'll rejoice and be glad. This is not to say it's always wind, rain, and storm, but sometimes it will be, and maybe even frequently it will be, and we shouldn't be surprised. God sent Abram a famine. Maybe you're feeling like you're in a famine now, um, but stick with me, and you'll be encouraged uh, by the hope we find in this text. The other thing I want to share with you before we go to the next point is um, this point, and that is that the Bible was not really, was not written merely to give us moral lessons. See, it would be very easy to look at this text and say, okay, uh, Abraham fell into fear, so don't be fearful. And Abraham um, lied, so don't lie. And Abraham was very selfish, so don't be selfish. So. Okay, amen, go home, do your best. I mean, that's the way a lot of people read the Bible. It's very common to read the Bible as if it's just a bunch of moral lessons. These are just a bunch of people who are giving us examples, and we're trying to follow and do the best we can, and if we do the best we can, maybe God will save us. And that is not the teaching of the Bible. That is not the point that it was written. Certainly it's true. You shouldn't lie, and you shouldn't be selfish, and you shouldn't be operating out of fear. I mean, those things are true. It's just that that's not the main point of this passage. That's not the main thing going on. There's a bigger thing going on, and it's this. Because of Abram's actions here in verses 10 through 20, God's redemptive plan is being threatened. That's the issue. God's promises to save the world through Abraham, that all the families of the earth would be blessed, that plan is being jeopardized. Do you remember what God said back in verses 1 through 3? He called to Abram and he said, Abram, I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be a nation. That is, descendants are going to come from you and your wife, Abram. And there's going to be lots of people who are going to fill a nation. Well, where is Abram now? How is that plan going to work now? Sarah is in Pharaoh's harem. Abram is across town somewhere else. I mean, we don't know where he is, but they are not together. So how in the world are they going to have descendants by which they're going to make a nation? And another promise that God made is that I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to send you into this land, and it's from this land that this nation is going to come forth. Well, where is Abram? They're not in the land anymore. They're in Egypt. Abram's away from his wife. He's not in the land. Thanks a lot, Abram. Way to go. I mean, he has totally ruined everything, it seems. That, that's, that's kind of the point we're supposed to be getting as we read this. Abram just screwed everything up. What's going to happen? Are the promises going to be fulfilled? Is the world going to be blessed? Is there going to be hope for salvation? 
And it's very easy to read this and just get discouraged. And you know, I, I just think as we apply this to our world today, isn't it very easy to get discouraged and cynical as we look and see the behavior of God's people sometimes? As we look throughout history and we see just the black marks on the church, we think of the Crusades. Uh, we think of the fact that in American history there were portions of the church that actually tried to support slavery in our nation. We think of uh, the abuse in the Catholic Church of priests preying on, on young boys, and we just think this is just scandalous. This is so offensive. How in the world can there be hope for the world through the church if the church is acting like that? And maybe you're cynical and you're discouraged about the church. Can God overcome the incompetencies of you and me and the church? Can God fix what we have broken? That's what this text is getting us to ask. And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he can, and yes, he will. And so the second point, just two points here this morning. The second point is this. To contrast with the failure of Abram, we see the faithfulness of God. So let's finish the story, starting with verse 18. Pharaoh calls Abram, like he's being called into the principal's office here. He's in trouble. So Pharaoh calls Abram in and says to Abram, what have you done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? I mean, Abram's being chewed out here. He's being chastised. Why did you say she is my sister? Why did you lie about this so that I took her for my wife? You know, the implication here is I would never have done this if I would have known that she was your wife, Abram. But you lied to me, and so now I've done this thing that I never desired to do, so here's your wife. Take her and go. I don't want her if she's married to you. I have respect for the sanctity of marriage, maybe Pharaoh thought. I had no interest in committing adultery with your wife. Take her and go. And we get this very upside-down picture here. Here's Abram, God's chosen one, leaving Egypt now in silence with his tail between his legs, embarrassed and humiliated. Abram has nothing to say. He has been embarrassed, and yet here's Pharaoh taking the moral high ground. Pharaoh, in this passage, is better than Abram. And Pharaoh is the Egyptian unbeliever, and Abram is God's chosen one. And yet Pharaoh is better in this case. I mean, that should surprise us, I suppose, except if you understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel, if you know that salvation is not by our works, this tends to make a little more sense. If salvation is by moral performance, then we're surprised at this because we think, how could Abram be so bad? But if salvation is by grace and grace alone and by what God has done and not what we do, we're not so surprised. We say, of course Abram could have a setback like this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have no sin, there is no truth in us. We're always needing grace. It doesn't surprise us that Abram would fail. We all fail. We're all imperfect. We all have setbacks. We all fall into backsliding. Abram was not saved by his works, and neither are you or neither are me. And Pharaoh, even though he was better than Abram, if Pharaoh didn't put his hope in the God of the Bible, he was not saved. 
But Abram, even with this setback, putting his hope in the God of the Bible is saved. That's the way the gospel works. It's not based on moral performance. It's based on grace. This is what Titus tells us. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, friends, the Bible is not, again, a list of moral examples for you to follow. It's not a book of heroes. It's a book about one hero, but it's not a book about heroes. In fact, when you look at all the characters in the Bible, almost without exception, they are disappointing people. So maybe you've seen this before, but I think this is funny. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossiper. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was too short. Abraham was old, and Lazarus was dead. And God used every one of them for His glory. And so if you're thinking to yourself, you know, I just can't be a Christian. I'm just not good enough. I've done all these things in my life. I'm not like those people at New Life on Sunday mornings that I worship with. They're better than me. I can't be a Christian. No, no, no. As you acknowledge, yeah, maybe you aren't as good as everybody else. Well, go to Jesus for forgiveness, and He will grant you mercy, and He will welcome you into His kingdom. That's the way the gospel works. So, how did Pharaoh know that Sarai was Abram's wife? Because obviously he becomes aware of this, and uh, we're not told exactly how that happened, but we are told the occasion for this to happen, and it's in verse 17. Because here's what God did. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh. In other words, God intervened. So I presented the question to you earlier, how is this going to work if Abram and Sarah are apart? How is this going to work if Abram and Sarah are in Egypt? How, how is this going to be fixed? Here's how it's going to be fixed. God's going to work. God's going to intervene. God's going to do something. God's going to take over. God's going to fix it. That's what's happening here in verse 17. The Lord steps in. He afflicts Pharaoh with the plagues. Maybe that's what alerted Pharaoh. Hmm, something seems to be wrong. Maybe Sarah was spared from the plagues, and, and he kind of put two and two together and came to this conclusion. We're not really sure, but God had to act, and he does. And remember what I told you last week about why this whole story is being written. Remember, Moses is the one writing Genesis. And Moses is writing Genesis for the Israelites who had just been released, just been delivered from Egypt in the Exodus. That's in the next book of the Bible. This is many, many years later. But that's why Moses is writing this. He, he's writing to the Israelites who just got out of Egypt. And he's kind of saying this to the Israelites. He's saying, you know, Israelites, you just got out of Egypt. Well, um, guess what? Sarah and Abram, they had a very similar experience. You were enslaved. Well, so was Sarai. He was in, she was in Pharaoh's harem. And just like you went into Egypt because of a famine, that's exactly what happened to Sarai and Abram. They went into Egypt because there was a famine. And just like you came out of Egypt with the plunder of the Egyptians, well, so did Sarai and Abram. They came out, it says at the end, with all that he had, all that 
wealth that Pharaoh gave him in verse 16, they came out with all of that luxury and all those riches. And Moses would also be saying, and just like God inflicted plagues upon the Egyptians to release you from Egypt, the plagues of flies and frogs and darkness and blood, well, in the same way, that's what's happening, that's what happened with Abram and Sarai. God afflicted the Pharaoh and the Egyptians with plagues. Do you see the similarities here? It's very clear what Moses is doing. He's trying to say that whenever God's people get into a mess, like getting enslaved in Egypt or getting Sarai in a harem, God intervenes and fixes it. God does what he needs to do to save his people. Always. Always. And the biggest, most important, most profound way in which he has done this is not in sending a plague, but in sending a Savior. God sent a Savior into the world. The Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, broke into the world. Not a plague, but a Savior. Jesus came, not that the world would be condemned, but that the world would be saved through him. And so the principle that I want you to remember through all of this, and we should keep this in mind as we read the whole Bible and as we go through this series on Genesis, is that the Bible is not about what you and I do for God, but about what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. That's what the Bible is about. Yes, it does call us to do certain things, that's true, but the primary purpose of the biblical story is to show us what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. Isn't it a beautiful picture here, really? If you look at the inverse of what's happening, if you look at the hint of the gospel here, Abram gave up his bride to save himself. Jesus comes into the world and gives up himself to save his bride. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus performed in a way that Abram didn't. And in every single way that you and I have failed, just like Abram has done, we look to Jesus, we trust him, because in the ways we've done it wrong, he has done it right and is worthy of our trust and our faith. Now let me clarify here, this, this does not mean that we don't grieve over the sins of the church. We, we should, we should. This doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we do, because it does. But what this does mean is that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. It means that Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, you go build my church for me. I will build my church. Jesus will do it. And this also means that forever God is faithful and forever God is strong, always and forever for us, for you, for me, for his church, and for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we receive from it. We thank you, Lord, that you can be trusted to always fix what we have broken. Most of all, in the sending of your Son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.